This is Srini Rao, and I'm the host of The Unmistakable Creative, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome to Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Burkus, best-selling author and recovering academic, and this is the show that tears down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. Each episode brings you an outstanding thinker to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date with Radio Free Leader and get some great stuff we don't share on the show by joining our community. You can sign up on the show notes page for this episode at davidberkus.com slash 733 or text Radio Free to 33444. We'll even get you caught up with our Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. It's a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox so you can listen in just one click. Again, that's davidberkus.com slash 733 or in the United States, text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Today, we're talking to my friend, Srini Rao. Srini is the host of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. He, uh, As you'll find out, he uses the internet to make things, and most of those things are amazing. So he's a brilliant mind, not only about creativity and innovation and what it takes to create unmistakable works, but also how you lead that and how you persist when you know that you're working on something. His new book that we are celebrating in this podcast is called Unmistakable, Why Only is Better Than Best?, And inside of that is some great advice about how to be that only that only you can be. So without further ado, our conversation with Srini Rao. So who are you and what do you do? I am Srini Rao and I'm the host of a show called The Unmistakable Creative. I'm also an author and a speaker. That was really, really short. And (laughs) and you didn't say the thing that I was hoping you would always say in the what do you do. So I'll ask it again. Srini, what do you do? Well, you know, I, I think the maybe what you're looking for is that I use the internet to make things. Yes, um, that's I, exactly what I was looking for. Yeah, so I, you know, and what those things are, some of those have involved podcasts, some of those have involved live events, they've involved animated shorts. Um, I, I, you know, I think I, I first and foremost see all forms of technology as a tool to create and make things. And so my natural instinct when somebody puts a new piece of technology in front of me is what could I make or what could I create using this that I could show, showcase and share with the world and I, I think that's just always been kind of my approach to, you know, how to play. Like, ever since I, I figured out that technology could be used to do that, I've been doing that. And I, I think, too, I mean, it, it sets the tone for, you know, what we're going to talk about mostly, which are some of the ideas in the new book. But it, it sets it, to set the tone for our, our listeners, I, this, uh, this concept of I use the Internet to make things, I love it as an introduction. I know that I was listening to your interview with our, our mutual friend, Jordan Harbinger, and he was, mm-hmm. he was um, hassling you about it. But I love it because I, you know, our we're so used to having the title. Where here's the organization I work for. Here's the title that that inflates how important I am, et cetera, <laughs> as an identity. And so this idea of like, you know, what do you do is not that. What do you do is literally how are you spending your time? Mm-hmm. And in, and in your case, um, it's this. And you and you've come from that world, right? Like one of the things I love about your story is that you are a person who played. The uh, played all of their cards right, even responded to a recession properly by like going back to grad school, mm-hmm. and then like it just didn't work. And you're like, I'm going to use the internet to make things and make things that bring people together. And in the process, led to all the stuff you led off with the author, the speaker, all that sort of stuff. Um, I guess tell us a little bit about your story at the beginning. If, if people are totally unfamiliar with with your work, if they don't listen to the Unmistakable Creative, which is a shame on multiple reasons, and I hope they will soon, <laughs> um, tell us a bit about your story and, and the the world that you left, and also the world that you've been creating using the internet to make things. 
Yeah. So um, I think we have to start with the world that I left. So I, I think, it, you know, you pointed out very accurately that I did a lot of the right things, a lot of the a lot of the things that are, you know, the checkboxes on society's life plan, like go to a good school, go to a grad school, get a better job, all that stuff that you think is going to happen. And I have this very sort of strange situation in the fact that I graduated not just once but twice into really bad recessions. I mean, you you couldn't you couldn't plan uh, a career getting screwed up like this. Uh, you know, I graduated from Berkeley in 2001, right when the dot com bubble burst, and then I graduated uh, from Pepperdine in April 2009 when we went into what is arguably the, the you know what they call the Great Recession at this point. And, you know, so the, the 2001 recession we recovered from, the 2009 recession, I think, forever changed uh, society at large. Like, I don't know that we will ever recover from that because, you know, the idea that, oh, you know, the recession is over and suddenly jobs that, you know, pay MBA students $90,000 are going to start falling from the sky. I, I think I realized that that was never going to happen again, that there would be no recovery from this because the world had fundamentally changed. And what fundamentally changed that was technology and the fact that you know now we are in a situation where we're being rewarded for standing out as opposed to being rewarded for fitting in, right? So back in those days, ideally what you were trying to do is um, if you saw a job description, your bullet points on your resume matched up with the bullet points in the job description. And if you made it through the filters, great. Like you were really trying to fit into that box. And now to, to really do work that is interesting to, you know, get opportunities, that no longer seems to be the case. And for me, it never was the case because I also got fired from all of my regular jobs because I was bad at them. And so <clears throat> I think my hand was really forced uh, into sort of starting this and, and sticking with it because I felt that I had no choice but to see it through. And, you know, to, to make a long story short, seven years after starting a blog, uh, we're here with, you know, Unmistakable Creative, which is a podcast where we've done probably at this point close to 700 interviews. Um, we've produced live events. Uh, I've ended up speaking uh, and being a paid speaker, actually, thanks to you because of, of you know, your introduction to our, our Mutual Speakers Bureau. And you know, I just had this book called Unmistakable uh, come out with a publisher, uh, Penguin Portfolio. So it's, it's, so like I'm kind of this mishmash of, of writer, speaker, author, podcaster. And I think that's why I, you know, I, I tell people I use the internet to make things. So that's the, the short version of what could be a ridiculously long story. Well, we're going to dive into a bit more of that story um, as we go forward, because I again, I think it's a fascinating story, and it, it, it I mean, you you tee it up. You're unfortunately the the pain and misery of probably two thousand and one and two thousand and eight actually are a great example of the reality that most people um, encountered. I mean, 2008 and then the recovery and this idea that it's a jobless recovery, which is code for, yeah, we figured out how to outsource or automate everything that we used to be paying a lot of people for. And so mm -hmm. the, the only stuff that's left, I mean, Dan Pink, in a sense, was very prescient with Whole New Mind. The only stuff that's left are the things that are fundamentally creative or um or the things that you can do to totally steal a term from your book that are that are unmistakable. That it's not about sort of being the best performer on a performance evaluation anymore. It's right. about being only because mm -hmm. that's the that's the when you're that you're that linchpin that Godin talks about or whatever that you want to call it. You're this sort of thing that can't be outsourced, even if you still work inside of a traditional organization. Um, the other reason I think it's it's a great example is that. You know, unmistakable treks, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, the new life plan, right? You said you you totally followed the old life plan to a T yeah. um, until it didn't work. And you've replaced it with a new life plan that looks an awful lot like how one goes surfing. Where did that come about? <laughs> 
Um, well, you know, the, the funny thing is when I finished graduate school, uh, I needed something to keep me from going insane because I, I, I realized that sitting in front of a computer all day doing nothing but searching for jobs and submitting resumes, it could actually become very depressing. Uh, you know, it, it, that, that's just a recipe for madness. It's kind of like the person or author who sits in front of, uh, Amazon the, the day the book launches and keeps, you know, re- re- pressing refresh to see where they're ranking. Um, which also is a recipe for madness. Uh, and so I, somebody told me, there was a guy named Peter Bregman, he said, you know, the, the worst thing you could do when you're unemployed is to spend all your time looking for a job, which is counterintuitive advice, but it made a lot of sense to me because I was, you know, hearing stories from classmates of mine saying really stupid things like I've applied to every job on the internet. And I thought, well, that's really dumb. That's just not efficient. Um, and you're not going to end up with a job you want that way. So I needed something to to keep me from going nuts, and surfing became this outlet uh, because it <clears throat> taught you how to be really present. It kind of just you know washed away all the troubles. And so when I was in the water, this job search of mine that was so daunting and so troubling, um, it didn't matter as much. It didn't it didn't take me into this sort of down place um, that it might have. And so it became this very fitting metaphor for everything in my life. And and you know the more I surfed, the more addicted I became to it. And uh, you know I think it, it played a big role in me kind of deciding that you know I don't want to go back to society's life plan. Like I have no desire to try to succeed in the context of somebody else's desire for what success looks like. Hmm. Oh, I think that's that's uh, a brilliant realization, and it it so I the reason that I resonate with it I I told you before we were recording is I've only ever been um I, I've only ever been surfing once, and it was inside the giant wave pool at Typhoon Lagoon, so it wasn't even real surfing. But there is my my kind of art or hobby or whatever you want to call it of choice has been Brazilian Jiu Jitsu for the last decade, and there are so many. Um, connections between the two. Um, mm-hmm. And actually a lot of the um, jiu-jitsu community, because it originates in Brazil, obviously are also surfers. And there's this idea, um, a, a lot of the mentalities, et cetera, are, are super useful. Although we don't have, I mean, if you go through the stages that you outline in the book, we don't really have a paddle out. We just have a find a partner and start trying to choke them unconscious type of thing. Right. Um, but the majority of it feels like the ride and the impact zone. Uh, yeah. I'm realizing as we're recording this, people listening have no idea what we're talking about. So maybe let's start here. If, for, for those who have no experience with surfing, can we talk through um, the stages yeah. top line and then we'll dive into them and the connection between that and your own sort of process of finding out your only. Yeah. So, you know, the, the way it works really is so, you know, the paddle out really is the first thing, right? You're standing on shore with a board in hand, but you have to get in the water and you have to get to a place that is known as the takeoff point where the waves are actually breaking. And so we call that the paddle out. Um, and, you know, nothing really goes wrong in the paddle out, but it, it's a bit like starting whatever it is that you're trying to start, whether that be, you know, uh, you know, uh, an online project of some sort, a company. It's sort of the it's a metaphor for the earliest phases of starting. So then you you paddle out and you find yourself in what is known as the lineup, which is all the other surfers in the water. And at any surf spot that's, you know, any good, the lineup is always going to be crowded with people who have more talent and more skill than you do. And so you have to be able to hack it in the lineup and you have to be able to really compete. Um, So then you have what's called the drop, which is, you know, this moment between when you're paddling for a wave and when you push yourself up on it. And, you know, the drop is really all about one thing. It's about commitment. If you don't commit on the drop, then you will find yourself tumbling down the face of a wave. Um, And what's funny is even if you commit and eat it, it's actually better than if you don't commit fully and um, 
it, you know, you, you eat it somehow. It, I'm not sure why it just doesn't, you know, you end up having a much worse situation when you're not fully committed. And then finally it, that, you know, takes you to standing up on the wave, which is the ride. And the ride is really all about mastery. Um, because once you're up and standing, that's when your skill is really put to the test. And there you have this sort of com- combination of both style and skill, uh, that come together and then finally, there's uh, a section that's known as the impact zone, which is where you're just taking wave after wave on the head. And to me, that was really uh, a metaphor for really the darker and difficult chapters of our lives. Because if you do anything that is of great significance or you're trying to do something that's hard, inevitably, you're going to be put in a situation that challenges you and tests you. And you know the the, the ability to, to have grit in that situation and to persist is really critical. And so that's what the impact zone is a metaphor for. And then finally, you have the, the last part, which is called the stoke. And you know I think what people who don't surf probably don't know is the big part of the reason that surfers surf um, is not for the waves themselves, but for what you feel like when you get out of the water after you catch a wave. It's just this incredible rush and it makes you happier. It makes you calmer. It, it does so many wonderful things. And it's kind of fresh in my mind right now because I've been out of the water for 15 days and you know I'm, I'm at a point of like agitation that I haven't been at. And I'm kind of like, okay, I, it like I can almost always correlate those two things. Like I know for a fact that, okay, part of why I'm feeling this way is because I've been out of the water for so long. You actually keep track of the number of days it's been since you're surfing or do you just like you're looking at your calendar app on your phone and doing the math now? Well, I don't always keep track. I've been traveling a lot um, the last few weeks. I'm picturing I'm picturing like a blackboard in your by the door at your your house. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the I will say this. So uh, one thing I did uh, as a byproduct of of realizing this was that I knew that you know when I was setting up interviews for Unmistakable Creative, people use uh, this app called Calendly, and so I actually figured out finally that I could have it set up to be one week off and one week on. So I made you know every other week unavailable to other people on Calendly. And suddenly I was I found myself able to have more time to surf and more time to myself because I, I thought, well, I'm the one who's making these options available to people, then I should be the one that dictates um, what those options are. And so it's not as as sophisticated as you said, but now at least this way I can avoid, you know, um, I can have days where like I have no appointments guaranteed or entire weeks because the challenge is you're always at the mercy of whatever Mother Nature's schedule is. Like it doesn't matter what your schedule is. No, that's fair. I actually, I love that. I do a similar thing where, you know, I, I, my scheduling system, same one, we use the same app, but it's always, uh, Tuesday and Thursday afternoons. Mm-hmm. You can do, you can you know, any pick any time you want in there, but it's, those are the times that I, that I talk to other humans. I'm actually more sociable than that, but I mean, for yeah. recording for media, for any of that sort of stuff. So I want to dive in. Cause the other thing that I enjoy this is that, you know, my, my background, I'm a, I'm a recovering academic. I'm looking for the ways that we can um, apply the best insights from research into um, everyday life, our leadership, et cetera. And from a, from a, the, your, your book becomes sort of an unlikely masterful career guide, in my opinion, because you have these, uh, this surfing analogy and these, um, oh, your own experiences mentioned, but you're also blending in a lot of different stuff in particular, like you already mentioned in the impact zone grit. And I was actually going to start with the other side with, uh, the ride, but let's start, let's start with that. Um, talk about kind of the, the role you see of that gritty thing in the impact zone. I know you already said it's the time where you're getting the waves kind of nailed on your head. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I feel like that's, you know, we love to think about grit and being gritty in these like, you know, movie montages of training where everything's yeah. going great because you're preparing for the big prize fight at the end of the right. the movie. But yeah. that's not actually what it's about. It's more about pushing through those times where you don't even know when you're going to get to breathe because yeah. you don't know where these waves are going. 
Yeah, you know, yeah, I, I think that's a pretty hilarious description. Like you said, like, you know, you're thinking Rocky theme song, like charging up the mountain with like, you know, ball and chain. But I think grit is very much a mental thing as well, because you get challenged, you know, with situations where, like you said, you don't know whether it's going where, where whatever you're working on is going. You don't know whether it's going to work out. And the the thing that I think I see is that a lot of people, they fail due to lack of grit. You know, they don't fail, they actually quit. Um, but then they call it a failure. And there's a, a critical difference to understand there. There's a big difference between failing and quitting. But it's easy to confuse the two because they seem very similar. You know, a lot of people quit when things get harder. The results aren't what they want them to be instantly. And I see this over and over and over again. You know, people give something a year, maybe uh, 90 days, and they're like, yeah, this isn't working. I, I don't remember where it was. I, I wrote about this in the book. I remember the guy who... Uh, posted on one of the forums uh, on Facebook or the uh, Facebook group for podcasters saying, oh, I've recorded four episodes. Nobody listens to my show. This is all bullshit. And I'm thinking to myself, really? Are you serious? Like, how can you possibly expect anybody to take you seriously? Um, and, and the funny thing is that we live in a world that moves at such a fast pace that everybody wants to be successful yesterday. Everybody wants, you know, fame and fortune yesterday. And as you well know, um, even after you supposedly arrive at this moment of arrival that you've been anticipating for your entire career, like writing a book or whatever it is, the work just continues. Um, and, you know, the level gets harder, it gets higher. Um, and you know, you still have to persist and you still have to have grit. You know, we were talking about the fact that, um, I, I don't, you know, like I haven't, like I, you know, I had this freakish success of a self-published book and you know, that it's kind of hard to follow that up, you know, even with a traditionally published book, um, I've had, you know, challenges just mentally dealing with it. That's been sort of my in, inner battle for the last three days is, okay, how do I have grit in the situation where I'm not thrilled by the results? Um, and also knowing at the same time that I really did do everything that I could to produce the best result that I could, but there's a certain amount of this that's out of your control. Yeah. You, I mean, you, you, um, you, my mind went to a really interesting place as you were talking about it. Cause I had a conversation maybe two weeks ago about, um, how the, the, the strivers, the achievers, the, the greedy people, whatever. And, you know, like the irony is you and I are talking about this and both of us, since we succumbed to what I'm about to say, also realized like, we're totally unqualified to be talking about this. You should go ask Malcolm Gladwell, but <laughs> like they, they vacillate between the, the places of being gracious for like hitting the goal and then also being uh, like a healthy dissatisfaction with where you currently are. Right. Yeah. Like you get to that thing and then you're like, yeah, but I can do more. Like, let's mm -hmm. just keep going. I can do more. And it, I think that's, it's um, it's indicative of that kind of role of of grit and that role of not actually sort of quitting. And you're exactly right. Like I've been so I, I've been fired once in in my career, and it was actually a really good thing for me. Not in that sort of woo woo Elizabeth Gilbert, um, right. you know, I travel the world. But what it, that was the one time where I failed. Mm -hmm. Every other time I quit. Right. You, yeah. you, you, you get fired, you get rejected by a, a publisher or something like that, or you lose out on a, a bid for a proposal, whatever that's failing saying, Oh, this is too hard. I'm going to stop doing it. That's quitting. And they're two very different things. Uh, I think it actually speaks to it as a good segue to um, one of the other things I wanted to talk about, which uh, around the drop and the role of deliberate practice. And you actually said something really cool earlier around this idea that you end up better off if you commit, even if you tank. Mm -hmm. And I think it's an interesting tangent into that, that role of deliberate practice, because I think a lot of people are doing what they think is the, the level of practice they need to get better. But what they're really doing is what's comfortable, which is not yeah. fully committing in that way. 
Yeah, I mean, so you know, if you if you look at deliberate practice, and I, I you know can't take credit for the term or the amount of work that's been done around it. You know, Anders Ericsson has written an amazing book recently called Peak that's all about this. But um, you know, the thing that you know is defi- defines deliberate practice is that it's hard, that it's actually something difficult and outside of your comfort zone. So I'll, I'll give you an example that I'm again, you know, personally wrestling with right now is is you know I've just written a book, and you know, like there was a point at which the process became easy. And now I'm at this very sort of nebulous beginning again of trying to take an outline and and I'm having the same feelings of how the hell is this ever going to turn into a book? And I have a deadline of October 1st to turn in an outline. And so it's one of those things where, okay, and and I also realize what's happening is, okay, I'm now in a situation that is forcing practice, the kind of practice that really will stretch me. I think you're right. People do what's comfortable. And as a result, they don't get better because the only way you get better is by doing the things you're not good at currently. Yeah, no, I totally. And doing the things that you're not good at in in a way where you're getting feedback, which you know, mm-hmm. in, in the, to use the surfing analogy, right, tanking and dropping off the the board and failing, it's really good feedback. Um, and then also the role of that sort of like coach or mentor type thing, which I know yeah. that at least like this is this is the one thing I really really think is still a benefit of traditional publishing, et cetera. Is there's this whole team of editors and your agents yeah. and all those people who are the guides on like. No, I, I know that you have contributed to you know a lot of thoughts in this realm, and you've done all this, but you haven't done a book yet, and we're going to give you the feedback on how to do that so that you mm-hmm. really can get better. If you want to know more about that kind of deliberate practice thing, you know, surfing analogy is great, Brazilian jiu-jitsu analogy, writing analogy, but we also both have the source. I, I've done an interview with him on this show. You've done one on yours. Yours is a lot longer and way more in-depth. We'll, we'll definitely link to both in the show notes um, so you can check it out because I think it's, it's one of those things, and I think it's related to grit. I think deliberate practice is so uncomfortable that you have to have the grit piece in order to push through it, whether it be surfing or whether it be trying to really um, engage and make uh, a dent in the universe that only you can make as it were. Um, so the, the book again is unmistakable. Why only is better than best. I don't know if, uh, if you know what's coming, but we ask all of our, uh, guests the exact same questions at the end, sort of a lightning round. Are you ready for that? Yes. And, and I, I, I think I know what some of your answers are, but I know I'm going to be surprised. Um, the, the first question, what's the best advice you've ever received? And you can't say why only is better than best. Cause that is great advice, <laughs> but what's the best advice you've That's ever funny. received? Do, do people actually say the title of their book is the best advice they've ever received? Uh, I mean, they haven't, but, uh, I'm wondering if you have, cause it's, yeah, no, I've, I mean, never... I've already decided it's the title of this episode and it is really good advice. I mean, it's, it's great career advice for 2016 and beyond. Um, I would say something that one of my mentors, um, Greg Hartle told me, and he said, you know, your temporary circumstances don't have to become your permanent reality. And in so many cases they do, um, because when you're going through something, uh, like those temporary things can start to feel permanent at a certain point, even though they're not. Hmm. That's good. Um, I, so I know that you block off your weeks, one week for surfing, one week for Mm -hmm. doing all your other stuff, but what's an average day look like for you? So this is a good question because um, I literally just wrote a post uh, about this on Medium titled The Eight-Step Daily Routine that has enabled me to write hundreds of articles and three books. So I'm going to pull it up so I have it in front of me. 
Um, yeah, but this is my, here's my day more or less in a nutshell. So I wake up, um, I try to be really good about one thing, which is blocking everything at, like at 8 PM at night. So no email after that. I try to do it even earlier on the days that I can. And then, um, cause I have issues with sleep deprivation. Like, uh, if I don't sleep well, it totally just screws me up. And, uh, so I try never to bring devices into the bedroom and I'm pretty good about it every now and then I fail. Uh, so I do that. I wake up most days by 6 AM. Uh, and then I sit down, I meditate for 10 minutes, I drink coffee and while I'm drinking my coffee, I'll read anywhere between 40 to 50 pages of, of a book. Um, at the moment I'm reading, uh, Pablo Escobar's son's, uh, memoir, uh, because I just finished watching season two of Narcos. And so I'm kind of obsessed with Pablo Escobar, which is weird. I, I, I realized, but, um, so, you know, uh, I do that. Then I write for an hour. That's when I do my thousand words a day. I write some of it by hand. And after I realize I can't read my handwriting, I move over to the computer and start writing there. And I'll transfer whatever I can actually read uh, from the notebook to uh, the computer. Uh, I try not to get on email or social media before 10 a.m. That's kind of a, a general rule of thumb. And I try to limit it to about twice a day. And then uh, before bed, I always read a book too. Like I try to read at night before I go to sleep because uh, I think what you put into your subconscious at night can have a big impact on what you produce in the morning uh, while you're sleeping. So, you know, as weird as it is to be reading Pablo Escobar's son's memoir uh, before you go to sleep, since it's all about all sorts of horrific shit, <laughs> um, it's still it's still well written and interesting. And I think that, you know, you're feeding your your mind with really, you know, thought-provoking and well-written content. Uh, and, you know, when I say read before you go to bed, I, I'm very specific about the fact that I read books, not, you know, online stuff. So that's in a nutshell. And then, of course, there are days when um, I actually don't do any of that first thing in the morning because I hit the water first. Hmm. So our third question is normally, what are you reading now? But since you've already answered that, what, are you, what was the last one you read before the Pablo Escobar book? Um, what did I just finish? Um, so there's there's two things that I've just finished. In fact, uh, we, you know, we we recently just started a new segment of our newsletter called the monthly reading list. Um, kind of you know model off of Ryan Holiday. We just asked our, our newsletter because I mean we interview so many authors, and I read you know at least ten books a month. Uh, so I think the one I finished there are two that I finished right before this that are fresh on my mind. Um, actually, I can give you three. One was uh, a book called What I Talk About When I Talk About Running by uh, Harumi Murakami, which is a really interesting book because it's he's a writer who talks about running as a metaphor for writing. And as a surfer, I, I appreciated that so much. It made all the sense in the world to me. Um, another one is called View from the Cheap Seats by uh, Neil Gaiman. It's a collection of essays that as all his nonfiction essays, including like the things, speeches that he's given, uh, forwards that he's written to books. And it's, it's really, really good. And then Kitchen Confidential by Anthony Bourdain. If you've never read that book, that book will blow your mind. It's, uh, it, that's one of those books that you won't be able to put down. You'll have a much deeper appreciation for, uh, what kitchen staff go through to prepare the meals that you eat at a restaurant. And uh, you'll pick up a few tips on how to actually cook that that are, are really kind of cool. My favorite one, I think, was you know if you I, I happen to be a big dessert fan. Like dessert is sort of my my vice. And you know when you go into a restaurant for some reason they can take the most mundane dessert like a brownie and ice cream at home look pretty average, but they make it all fancy. And there's one really stupidly simple trick that they get you you know to pay another eight dollars for. They make it all fancy by using the squeeze bottle. By you know putting the the syrup or whatever it is through a squeeze bottle, and you can make intricate patterns and make it look very decorative. And I, when I read that, I thought that's so stupidly simple but genius. Um, so those are my those are my books. What do you believe that most people don't? Ooh, what do I believe that most people don't? Um, 
I don't believe – so I believe that there's nothing that everybody should do. So for example, there are a lot of people who talk about things like my favorite one you know, that I like to rant on is everybody should start a podcast and I think that's nonsense. Um, I think there are plenty of people who shouldn't. Hmm. I mean and beyond just the people who are absolutely terrible uh, voice-wise and keeping things organized. No, I'm, I'm with you. Podcasts are the new sort of like blogs, et cetera and – um, I feel like, you know, this one has not super exploded to the level of unmistakable creative or uh, like art of charm. Um, but I have to remind people like, no, we've been doing this since before it was cool. And I don't mean that as a hipster. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, I, I appreciate the, the fact that you and that's the thing, right? Like, I appreciate the fact that you didn't just follow some trend. Well, I mean, you don't know that. But no, I was kidding. So um, the title of the show, this is our last question. The title of the show is Radio Free Leader. In your view, what makes someone a leader? I think it's a unique uh, perspective and point of view. Um, you know, I think you, you, you fittingly asked, what do I think that uh, you know, a lot of people probably don't agree with and that that could be an hour-long conversation in and of itself. But I, I think it's a unique point of view because um, you, know, you can't really lead somebody if you're simply parroting and mimicking what other people are saying. So the book, again, is Unmistakable, Why Only is Better Than Best. Srini, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.